Coming up on Philosophy Talk. A wise man once said, know thyself. Easier said than done. Are many of the beliefs we have about ourselves false? The entire quote is, know thyself and thou shalt know all the mysteries of the gods and of the universe. My version is this, know thyself because what else is there to know? Do we know our own minds directly and immediately like Descartes thought? You don't know me. You don't know me. Are the very concepts we use to describe ourselves and others, such as character traits, pretty much just fictions? Jerry, I know myself. If I'm out on the street and it starts to go down, I don't back off until it's finished. Are we the things we know best? Our guest is Timothy Wilson from the University of Virginia. The limits of self-knowledge. Maybe if you spend your life hiding who you are, you might finally end up fooling yourself. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Carrying on conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford. That's where Ken teaches philosophy and I hang out in the emeritus office. Today, we're philosophizing about the limits of self-knowledge. How well do we really, really know ourselves? Well, quite well, according to some. Descartes, for example, thought that we had infallible and complete knowledge of everything going on in our minds. And many philosophers have agreed with Descartes. And, you know, John, I think common sense agrees with Descartes, too. I mean, suppose I want to know what I think or what I feel or what I plan to do. Now, I don't have to go out and consult some fancy expert. I don't have to do some elaborate experiments to find out. I just need to reflect a little and to do a little introspection. Well, Ken, it's not that simple. Freud taught us that long ago. Many of our beliefs and desires are hidden from us. They're repressed, locked up in the unconscious. And it can take some pretty expensive therapy to ferret them out. I take it you're speaking from personal experience there. (laughs) Now, Now, look, I know Freud's theories of the unconscious has definitely had a huge influence in all sorts of fields. I don't deny that from psychology to philosophy to art and literature. There's just one little problem with it. It's false, completely unsupported by scientific evidence. Well, maybe the details of Freud's particular view of the unconscious aren't supported by scientific experiments and evidence, but there's a lot of evidence to show that we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. Take something as simple as our own moods. Well, I happen to be in a great mood, John. We're doing our show. Hopefully lots of people are listening. What could be better than that? Don't, don't, don't tell me. I know you're going to say, I'm just making that all up. In order to, to what? To put myself in an even better mood? No, I, I grant you you know what mood you're in. People are good at knowing what mood they're in. But I tell you, they're not so good at knowing why. Here's a little experiment for you. Take a bunch of people and ask them to keep track of their mood changes over time. Then ask them to explain the causes of these mood changes. They'll talk about their stress levels or workloads or the amount of sleep they got or the weather or the day of the week. Those are perfectly plausible explanations. After all, rainy days and Mondays do always get me down. Nah, but when you do the measurements and gather some actual statistical data, it turns out that they're 
is very little correlation between our mood swings and the things like the day of the week or the state of the weather that we cite. So you're saying that people just sort of make up the explanation about the causes of their mood swings sort of out of whole cloth? No, not necessarily out of whole cloth. Sometimes they do like you did. They latch on to readily available cultural memes. Rainy days and Mondays always get me down, like the song says. These memes make us feel like we understand ourselves, even when we really don't. You seem to be implying that people know absolutely nothing about the causes of their own uh, mood changes. Well, not nothing, but look, I bet I bet you're pretty good at predicting your wife's moods or your son's moods. But <laughs> you're right about that. Man, I, I learned a long time ago to keep away from them, to keep my distance from them in the morning before they've taken their showers or have had a good breakfast. Oh, man. And, and how do you know to do that? Surely not through introspection. Well, I've lived with them a long time, and over the years, I've observed certain systematic, regular patterns in their moods. Sure. So you approach your own family kind of like a scientist would. You adopt a more or less detached third-person, even experimental point of view. If you want to know about yourself, do the same thing. Well, John, you remind me of Flattery O'Connor. Now, she said, I don't know what I think until I read what I write. That's clever, but it always seems backwards to me. Yeah, well, when I read what I write, I still often don't understand it. But anyway, she had a, uh, she had a, she had a deep point. We like to think that we know our own minds simply by looking inward through the reflective gaze of introspection. But it just doesn't work that way. Uh, John, I, it's hard for me to buy that. Look, we live our lives in the first person, not in the third person. Lived experience, you know, the I is about how we seem to ourselves. If what you're saying is right, if if the way we seem to ourselves is so out of sync with who, how we really are, doesn't that imply that we're mostly being buffeted about by forces over which we have no real control, into which we have no real insight? I'm glad you appreciate why this matters, Kim. And to answer your question, first we need to figure out exactly how wide the gap is between the ways we appear to ourselves and the way we actually are. And so we sent a roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, in search of people who regularly confabulate their self-images. She files this report. There once was a successful salesman in Northern England. We'll call him Mr. X. Mr. X sold health products to hospitals, so it was sad and ironic that he ended up as a long-term patient in one of the very hospitals where he'd worked. From moment to moment, he would um, sort of think he's at work or think he's in a hotel or think he's in a spa, you know, depending on the moment. He would tend to make the location better than what the reality suggested. Katerina Fotopoulou is a cognitive neuroscientist at University College in London. She says Mr. X had developed a case of spontaneous confabulation. That is, he would produce false memories. He would misremember his wedding day, or he might even claim that he's married to somebody else, usually younger and, uh, you know, rather attractive, or that he's earning a lot of money, uh, or that he drives a faster car than the one he drove. Mr. X had suffered an aneurysm in the orbitofrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for memory, motivation, and emotion. After brain surgery, his doctors realized he could register memories, but he had no way of regulating them. He'd mix memories from 10 years ago with memories from yesterday. One day he'd be 56, the next day he'd be 65. 
and he'd recall things that never happened. It's quite striking. As soon as you meet him, um, he will come up with some story such as, oh, we were in the canteen the day before together, weren't we? You are the one that, I don't know, lived in New York for 10 years. And that will be completely fabricated and he hasn't seen you before and you've never been to New York, for example. Fotopoulou says these false memories were his brain's way of expressing desire. The moment that he tells me that he met me in the food canteen, he's actually hungry. The interesting thing is, these memories Mr. X was inventing were mostly positive and self-enhancing. And it struck me as a kind trick of the brain that Mr. X believed he was on vacation in Australia rather than sick in a hospital bed. It is well known in psychology that we all have a mild positive bias. We all tend to think mostly about ourselves in a slightly more positive way. And certainly when it comes to the future, you know, sometimes we call that hope. These are not, it turns out, uncommon, these confabulations about the future. Professor Martin Conway, also from City University in London, has been researching human memory for more than 30 years. When you begin to lose that tight control of your cognition, it's very easy for dreams and fantasies to sort of turn into memories and you sort of experience them as memories or as projected plans for the future. Conway says, of course, people with regular brains can fabulate too. To give you an example, one man had a memory of being in the park with his mother, watching dinosaurs walking across the ridge of some nearby hills. And he knew it wasn't a memory, obviously, but nonetheless, he experienced it as a memory and he was very fond of it as a childhood memory. Conway points to one of his favorite studies where a group of researchers planted false memories on regular people. They told college students that researchers had interviewed their mothers and were going to help them recall early childhood memories. One of the memories was false, that the students had knocked over a bowl of soup at a wedding. And uh, about 30% uh, of these young adults uh, actually spontaneously recall knocking over a bowl of soup at a wedding. And when tested some time later, it had become integrated with their autobiographical memories, so now they could tell you whose wedding it was, where it took place, what time of day they knocked it over, and what the consequences have been. Conway says people are usually outraged when they're told their memories never happened. I think people regard their memories as being their own, as their sort of possession, if you see what I mean. Discovering your memories are false threatens your sense of self, but Conway thinks that just makes the subject of memory all the more interesting. And in extreme cases, your good false memories can actually help you. And it doesn't matter too much whether they're true or false, as long as they serve this important function of affirming who we are. So a man in a hospital bed who's suffered an aneurysm and cannot live on his own believes he's just been out driving his fast car while on vacation in Australia with his beautiful wife. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.